Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top news in science. Well, the big news, which has dominated the headlines for weeks now, is the Webb Space Telescope. It is finally releasing astonishing pictures, pictures of things that we've never seen before in this great universe of ours. It cost only $10 billion, but it's worth every penny of it. NASA, the European Space Agency, have scored a bullseye on this one. First of all, it sits a million miles away from the planet Earth. It's perched in outer space at a point where you get a tremendous amount of information about the universe. You see, the Hubble Space Telescope, great as it is, has a blind spot. The Hubble Space Telescope can photograph ultraviolet radiation, for example, from black holes, also visible light from stars, of course, but it's lacking in the infrared range. It has a blind spot, and that's where the Hubble Space Telescope comes into play. The Hubble Space Telescope is specifically designed to be able to peer into the infrared range. Now, why is that important? For several reasons. First of all, much of the universe, especially our galaxy, is covered with dust clouds. Dust clouds which you can penetrate if you can penetrate through the infrared region. Second of all, the universe is expanding. Therefore, light from the distant stars is also expanding, meaning that their wavelength increases because like an accordion, they're being stretched. In other words, there's a huge part of the electromagnetic spectrum that is basically stretched because of the expanding universe that is a blind spot for the Hubble Space Telescope. And that's where the Webb Space Telescope comes in. The Webb Space Telescope can peer into an area that we've never seen before. Well, unfortunately, I'm only able to transmit an audio signal, not a visual one. But if you want to see the pictures that we're going to talk about today, go to nasa.gov and you can see the glorious pictures that are being taken by the Webb Space Telescope, which are quite historic. Well, leading off, it was President Biden himself who introduced the first picture. It was a picture containing a very sharp image of, well, trillions, trillions of stars. For example, let's take a pinpoint of light tonight. Tonight, go outside, look at the stars, and take a pinpoint of light from the heavens. Now expand that pinpoint of light to that gigantic screen that you saw with President Joe Biden. And then you can see trillions of stars. So this is amazing. Every pinpoint of light that you see in the night sky tonight contains trillions of stars. Now each dot in that photograph that President Biden showed, each dot is a galaxy. And a galaxy in turn contains about a hundred billion stars. And how many stars were in that photograph? Thousands. So in other words, we're talking about trillions, trillions of stars giving off light 
that make up one pinpoint, one pinpoint of light in the night sky. That's how big the universe is. And then even children ask the question, Mommy, Daddy, where is the farthest star? Well, that photograph you saw contains light from some of the farthest stars. Some of the stars, their light has been going throughout the universe for over 13 billion years. And the universe itself is only 13.8 billion years old. So in some sense, you are in fact staring at some of the oldest and farthest stars that we've been able to photograph with the Hubble Space Telescope. And how come we can see so far into this black emptiness of outer space? How come we can peer so far into the blackness of space? It's because of Einstein's theory. Einstein's theory basically says that gravity can bend light. Now, your glasses also bend light. That's why your glasses can act as a magnifying lens. Well, because gravity can also bend light, gravity can also be used as a magnifying lens. And these are called Einstein lenses. Einstein lenses allow you to see way, way into distance light that has been moving for billions and billions of years until it finally reaches our telescope because the Einstein lens acts as a magnifying glass. And that's what you saw. That's what you saw with President Joe Biden. Trillions of stars making up a pinpoint of light in the night sky, visible because Einstein's theory allows you to bend the path of light beams just like an ordinary magnifying glass. And so, yes, we are now beginning to probe the farthest stars. Well, the next picture that you can see in NASA.gov is of the Carina Nebula, a gigantic collection of stars about 7,000 light years away. You've seen that nebula picture over and over again. Every time Hollywood has a picture of a starship whizzing past the distant stars, they use the Carina Nebula as a backdrop. It looks like the fingers of your hand, gigantic wisp of smoke in the shape of a hand. Well, that's called the Carina Nebula, and scientists love to analyze that nebula because this gas cloud is a nursery for baby stars. Yes, because the night sky is so big and you can see stars in all stages of their life cycle, you can see the entire life cycle of stars by simply looking up. The birth, maturation, and death of stars all contained in the night sky. And that's what you can see in the Carina Nebula when you go to nasa.gov. That's a stellar nursery. Stars are being born right as you observe them into this nebula. In fact, in some sense, you're looking at our own galaxy and our, our own solar system. You see, once upon a time, we were like that. Once upon a time, our sun was part of a nebula and that nebula served as a nursery for baby stars, and that's where we come from. So when you look at the Carina Nebula, 7,000 or so light years away, realizing that in some sense it's like a snapshot, a snapshot of the entire life cycle of the solar system. And so once again, the Carina Nebula is basically a baby nursery for stars, 
but you can see stars in all phases of their life cycle, being born, maturing, lighting up the heavens, and eventually perhaps undergoing a supernova or what is called a planetary nebula. Now the next picture you can see in nasa.gov has five large blobs of light rotating around each other. This is Stevens Quintet, five galaxies rotating around each other. Now, how is that possible? Well, first of all, our galaxy is in motion. The universe is expanding, and as a consequence, many of the galaxies are moving away from us. Now, the closest galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy, and it, it actually is moving toward us. But when you go to the Stevens Quintet, the Stevens Quintet is five galaxies all rotating around each other. So in other words, in some sense, they are defying the original expansion of the universe, probably because they were very close together at the beginning of time. And these galaxies are rotating around each other. That's so unusual, a quintet of galaxies, five of them. And then we have the Southern Ring. As I mentioned earlier, the night sky gives you, like a nursery, the life cycle of stars. When stars are first formed, they're, they're culled out of the nebula. Gas condenses, hydrogen gas condenses in the nebula until temperatures reach hundreds of millions of degrees centigrade, and then the star undergoes fusion and the star lights up. Eventually, the star uses up its hydrogen fuel. Can't last forever and starts to burn helium. It then turns into a gigantic red giant star, an unstable star called the red giant. But eventually it exhausts the helium fuel as well. And there's basically nothing left to burn. At that point, the star stops expanding and basically collapses on itself, leaving a ring. That's called the Southern Ring, which is another photograph on nasa.gov. The Southern Ring is basically a dying star. At the very center of this gigantic halo called the Southern Ring, you see a white dot. That's what's left of the original star. So the original star expanded in size when it became a red giant, used up all its helium fuel, and then the expansion just kept on going, giving you the Southern Ring, which is basically the last hurrah for us stars. Now, at the very center of the star, there is a white object. It is a white dwarf. A white dwarf star, in some sense, represents what our sun will also become billions of years from now. Five billion years from now, our sun will probably use up its hydrogen fuel, mutate into a red giant, use up its helium fuel, and then release a gigantic cloud of gas called the, uh, called the nebula. It's a planetary nebula. And then it shrinks down to a tiny object called the white dwarf. Now the white dwarf shown at the very center of the southern ring is quite unusual. That white dwarf weighs as much as the sun. Yet the size is only the size of the earth. Let me repeat that again. The end product of this stellar evolution over billions of years for small stars, the end product is a white dwarf star, 
It weighs as much as an ordinary sun, like our sun. But how big is it? It's the size of the earth. That is amazing. That means that every teaspoon, every teaspoon of white dwarf material weighs billions of tons. That's how compressed, that's how compressed this white dwarf is. And we see these in outer space. When white dwarf stars were first proposed by astronomers uh, back in, I think, the 1930s, um, other astronomers laughed and said, that's impossible. How can you squeeze the sun down to the size of the earth? Well, that's what you see. You see the mass of the sun squeezed down to the size of the earth. Now, if that isn't crazy, then for even larger stars, the white dwarf can also collapse. And when it collapses, it can collapse down to something even smaller than the Earth. And that is a neutron star. A neutron star, believe it or not, weighs as much as the sun, approximately. But how big is it? The size of Manhattan, about 20 miles across. Now, you may say to yourself, this is crazy. If you take our sun, a dead star, five billion years from now, squeeze it down to the size of Manhattan, how can you prove it? It doesn't emit light anymore. It's a dead star. Yeah, yeah. So you're proposing a theory which can never be verified. Well, nope. We can actually verify these theories because this neutron star spins. And because it's spinning, it's like a rotating flashlight. Every once in a while, the flashlight rotates right in your direction. And what do you see? You see a blip. That blip is a pulsar. And so, in other words, it is possible to have photographic evidence. Photographic evidence of a neutron star. A star that is compressed all the way down to the size of Manhattan. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that Mother Nature can unleash gravitational force that strong to squeeze the sun down to an object the size of Manhattan. Well, if you thought that was amazing, what happens to even bigger stars? Bigger stars, let's say 10 to 50 times the mass of our sun, they just don't stop at a neutron star. They just keep on going. They're compressed even down below the limit for a neutron star, and they become a black hole. And how big is a black hole? Well, we don't know. We used to think that they're nothing but like a dot, a dot of light called a singularity. We don't believe that anymore, but we really don't know how big a neutron, a black hole is, but we do know they represent the end product of stellar evolution. And the Hubble Space Telescope has already given us the images of some of these black holes. And using radio telescopes, we've even gotten glorious photographs of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. If you want to see a black hole tonight, go outside, look in the direction of Sagittarius, and there's a, there's a spot between Sagittarius and its neighboring galaxy, neighboring constellation, which is the location of a black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So all these things are yours tonight. If you go out and take a look and then go to nasa.gov 
and look at some of the glorious photographs of the Webb Space Telescope. Now, I have to admit, however, that there is something about the Webb Space Telescope that very few people talk about. And it's a little bit embarrassing. Why don't they talk about it? Well, first of all, the launch of the Webb Space Telescope was a big success. But what about the lifetime? The lifetime of the Webb Space Telescope. The Hubble, that telescope, is the workhorse of astronomy. It's been up there for over 30 years, and it's still growing strong. Periodically, it has to be refurbished and repaired, but it's still going strong. However, the Webb Space Telescope will probably only last maybe five years, maybe 10 years if we're lucky. And why is that? I mean, after all, it costs $10 billion. That's a lot of money to throw away after just five years or maybe 10 years. Well, it has to do with the fact that the Hubble Space Telescope is perched a million miles from the Earth. In order to get the glorious photographs in the infrared range, it has to be positioned very far from the Earth. Now, a million miles from the Earth, that's four times four times the distance from the Earth to the Moon. So that's an enormous distance, but that's what you have to do in order to get these glorious pictures. But you see, our astronauts, the world's record for our astronauts is that they've only been able to reach the Moon. The Webb Space Telescope is at a distance four times, four times farther than the Moon. So in other words, astronauts cannot repair the Webb Space Telescope. And that's the weak spot. The weak spot is simply that eventually micrometeorites wear and tear, batteries run out, things don't last forever. And so usually we would send astronauts to fix the battery, fix the, the mirrors, realign things, refocus things so that the space telescope can take more glorious photographs, but not the web. Because of the fact that it's a million miles from Earth, Astronauts can't reach that far. It's too dangerous for our astronauts. So, in other words, our astronauts will not be able to repair the damage. And already, you've probably seen some pictures of it, already micrometeorites have hit the lens of the web. Fortunately, it didn't cause any permanent damage to the, to the telescope. But it just goes to show you that after five years, a lot of the fuel for the telescope will be exhausted. Repair operations are impossible. You can't refuel it and will simply allow it to die. And so even though the Webb Space Telescope is giving us glorious photographs of the universe, it has a weak spot. But let's say something that happened to the United States Congress just a few days ago. The United States Congress just passed an amendment to a bill which makes it possible for our Air Force and Navy pilots to talk about UAPs, UFOs, aliens from outer space, you name it, without being stigmatized by these observations. You know, I've talked to pilots. I've talked to commercial pilots who've said that, yes, they've encountered things that, well, look like flying saucers. They've encountered these things. And then I ask them, well, what do you do? And they say, nothing. Because, of course, you're ostracized. People begin to look at you in a strange way, and you could lose your job. You see, back in 1986, there were several seasoned Japanese pilots 
flying over Alaska and they saw something. They saw three UFOs flying neck and neck as they soared over Alaska. So we had multiple sightings by multiple modes. Not just one pilot, but three pilots, seasoned Japan Airline pilots. And multiple modes, not just eyesight, but cameras and also radar. Radar from the airplane and radar from the earth. Well, this is amazing. Multiple sightings by multiple modes. That's the gold standard. That's the gold standard for observing strange anomalous things in outer space. But what happened to them? Well, the pilots did a short press conference after they came back, and then they were told to shut up. It looks bad. What? Are seasoned pilots seeing pink elephants in the sky? I mean, what's the world coming to? And so they were given desk jobs. In other words, they were demoted. And there was a lesson that came out of that 1986 JAL sighting. And that is, you report these sightings at your own peril. Well, recently, of course, the United States Navy has released quite a bit of footage about these encounters, which are actually rather frequent. Pilots have said that when they took pictures during one episode, these, these flying saucers were flying around every day. Every day for hours, these things were flying around. But of course, they only have images taken only sporadically because, of course, these pilots would be, would be threatened uh, with demotion. People would laugh at them. Their careers would be uh, ruined, just like what happened to the Japan Airlines pilots. Now, then the next question is, what do we do? And that is, we should collect data. I'm a physicist. Data is what we go by. We don't simply say, hey, I saw something last night. It looked like a flying saucer. No, we want evidence. Evidence that is reproducible, testable. Evidence that is falsifiable. That's the gold standard. That's the gold standard for sightings. Not just one person, but scores of people. And what have our pilots seen? Well, if you can believe the metrics that are now coming out by physicists analyzing these videotapes, these objects can fly, whatever they are, between Mach 5 and Mach 20. That's up to 20 times the speed of sound. Not only that, but they can drop. They can drop an altitude 80,000 feet within a matter of seconds. Amazing. These objects can zigzag, and when they zigzag, they create G-forces, centripetal forces. How much are they? Well, we can measure them. The G-forces are hundreds of times the force of gravity if you were to execute a nosedive in the Earth's gravitational field. So, in other words, any living thing would be crushed, crushed by the G-forces. Not only that, but these objects, whatever they are, can go underwater. That's right. Not only can they fly into space, cruise on the Earth's atmosphere, they can also go underwater. And so what do we have that is comparable to what we can measure with the data now coming from our U.S. Air Force and Navy pilots? 
Well, Vladimir Putin has stated openly that the Russians have perfected hypersonic drones. They can go between up to 20 Mach, and at Mach 20, they can outmaneuver any Star Wars system that the United States can field. You see, that's the whole point. The whole point of creating a hypersonic drone is that it can zigzag, it can maneuver, and as a process, as a consequence, outmaneuver the Star Wars radio radar system that we've spent billions of dollars perfecting. So in other words, the Russians aren't stupid. They don't have the money to compete with the United States to build an anti-ballistic missile shield. It costs too much money. But it costs pennies to penetrate one. And that's what the Russians have decided. They decided that they're simply outgunned when it comes to matching a Star Wars shield of their own. But what, what they can do with a minimum amount of money is to create an ICBM that can zigzag. And that is the hypersonic drone, specifically designed to elude a Star Wars system. Well, lastly, some people ask the question, well, what's my opinion? What's my opinion about all these things? Well, as I said, the Webb Space Telescope has given us pictures, a pinpoint of light expanded, containing light from trillions of stars, each dot representing a galaxy of 100 billion stars or so. Now, to believe that we're the only intelligent species in the universe is pretty hard to believe. When each dot, each dot of the night sky contains trillions, trillions of stars. And how many stars are there in the universe? Well, we can actually give you an approximate number. Each galaxy contains 100 billion stars. And how many galaxies can the Hubble Space Telescope see? Well, remember, this is just what we can see, not what's really out there. The Hubble Space Telescope can see about 100 billion galaxies. So how many stars can we see with our telescope? Multiply 100 billion times 100 billion. 100 billion galaxies, each galaxy containing 100 billion stars. And bingo, there you have it. The number of stars that we can see with our telescopes is 100 billion times 100 billion. An incredible number. Now, to believe that we're the only game in town, that we're the only intelligent species in the galaxy, in the universe, I think is, far, is nearsighted. I think they're out there. However, then the next question is, if they're out there, then why don't they visit us? Well, maybe they have. Who knows? But that is a topic for an entirely new show. And so, once again, stay tuned for exploration for a future show when we'll talk about alien civilizations in outer space. And we'll try to answer the question, if they're out there, then how come they don't visit us? That's the so-called Fermi Paradox. And we'll try to make a stab at that question in a later program on exploration. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. And once again, if you want to know more about Exploration and my work, 
go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U dot O-R-G. And uh, go to my Facebook site. I have about 5 million fans on Facebook. And I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about the possibility of, well, will the Webb Space Telescope find evidence of life in the universe? As we said before, one dot, one dot in the night sky can be magnified by the Webb Space Telescope to give you a photograph of trillions of galaxies. And then the question is, with so many galaxies out there, but it's a probability that a few of them have life on them. In other words, maybe some of them have rocky planetary surfaces with oceans, maybe an atmosphere with oxygen and water vapor, and perhaps the beginnings of life. And if microbial life gets off the ground, eventually will evolution create sentient beings like, like us? Well, to probe these questions, we're going to bring on an astrobiologist, Dr. Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis. So we're going to talk about the possibility of life in outer space using all the tools of modern physics and chemistry and biology. So once again, today in exploration, we're going to talk about life in the universe, the Webb Telescope Universe. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? Oh, man, I was so excited about nature when I was young. We had a house in Cleveland, Ohio, that backed onto a swamp. And my brother and I would go tramping back, and we'd collect butterflies, and we'd collect frogs, and we'd collect crayfish. And at night, I loved looking up at the sky and the stars. And so my parents bought me a telescope. And the first one was really small, but then I got larger and larger telescopes and ended up building my own. So I loved looking at the sky. and look, Saturn was my favorite. So nature just turned me on. When I was in high school, I moved to northern New Jersey. And northern New Jersey is a, just a gold mine for minerals. They're famous mineral localities. And I had a teacher who pointed me in the direction and said, go to Franklin, New Jersey, go to Patterson, New Jersey, collecting minerals. And that's what really got me into mineralogy, which is my main field right through college. Okay. Now, you are an expert in an area that is not familiar to the average person, and that is something called astrobiology. So what is astrobiology? Oh, astrobiology is one of the most amazing new integrated fields in science. It's the study of the origin of life, the distribution of life in the universe, and also discusses what the future of life might be in the universe. This is a field that has been brought to life by major new funding through NASA 
and the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is based at the Ames Research Center in California. Okay, so your book is entitled Genesis, The Scientific Quest for Life's Origin. Let's begin now in the year 1953 uh, with an experiment done by a graduate student uh, under the direction of his advisor uh, by the name of Stanley Miller. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and how that led to a paradigm shift with regards to how we view Genesis? Boy, Professor, what a transformation that was. Stanley Miller young 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Chicago. His mentor was Harold Urey, who had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of deuterium, the heavy hydrogen isotope of heavy water. So Urey was incredibly famous. Miller was unknown. Miller came to Urey and said, I want to try an experiment to make the molecules of life from nothing more than a primitive atmosphere. Now, Urey had proposed the primitive atmosphere consisted of hydrogen, methane, which is the natural gas you burn on your stove, and ammonia, that's the strong-smelling chemical from ammonia cleaners. And he mixed those together with water and just ran electric sparks through a piece of glassware. And lo and behold, in just two or three days, that clear, colorless solution began turning shades of pink and then brown and then black gunk started getting deposited on the sides of the glassware. Miller had made a whole range of organic molecules that were basic building blocks of life. The amino acids that make our proteins, the sugars that make our carbohydrates, all sorts of molecules that form cell membranes called lipids. And not only that, a few of the bases that are called, these are the molecules that are key components of DNA and RNA. Many of the most fundamental building blocks of life just appeared out of a simple primitive atmosphere and sparks like lightning. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Uh, what we're talking about is getting a flask with horrible chemicals like ammonia, methane, hydrogen, sending a spark through it, uh, essentially replicating what they thought was the early atmosphere of the Earth bombarded by X-rays and lightning bolts and so on and so forth. And bingo, out of that came the building blocks of proteins, amino acids. So what was the reaction of the scientific community, which before that experiment uh, was really um, basically had no theory as to how organic chemicals could form out of nothing? It's true. This was a bombshell. The scientific community looked at this and said, wow, this must be how life originated. If in just a couple of days you can go from a simple atmosphere to all these building blocks of life, then given millions of years, the early ocean would just have been chock-a-block full of all kinds of organic molecules. And that was what led to this idea of the primordial soup, an early broth of just the right building blocks for life. So people thought, gee, it's just going to be a matter of 10 or 20 years and we'll know everything there is to know about the origin of life. Of course, that was a little overly optimistic. It's, it's taken us a lot longer and we're still a long way from knowing but this was the first experiment, the seminal experiment that set us on the path to believing that there is a chemical origin of life going from the simplicity of a geochemical world to the complexity of the biochemical world. Okay, so back in the 50s, they thought that the early atmosphere of the Earth was a hostile brew of ammonia, methane, hydrogen, and things like that. However, today, we're not so sure. That's right. Uh, today, many groups have proposed a different scenario uh, for the formation of life on the Earth, very similar, of course, to what uh, Miller and Urey had, but with a different chemical composition of the soup. 
Uh, what is now the leading theory as to what the atmosphere and the oceans looked like back then? Well, the, the one thing about the atmosphere is that Yuri's idea of an atmosphere with hydrogen and methane is much to what's called reducing. We think that it was a much more chemically neutral atmosphere, including things like nitrogen, the dinitrogen gas that makes up most of our atmosphere today, perhaps some CO2, uh, perhaps uh, other minor components like carbon monoxide, maybe a little bit of methane, maybe some hydrogen, but not as chemically reactive as the atmosphere that Miller proposed. Nevertheless, when you put sparks through any of those atmospheres, you still get very interesting products. So the basic concept of the Miller-Urey experiment is certainly valid. But there are other environments, as you suggest. Okay. Now, um, the Alvin submarine, uh, which was used to probe the Titanic riding on the bottom of the ocean, and also to retrieve a hydrogen bomb uh, dropped off the coast of Palomar, Spain, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was also used to investigate what are called volcano vents. And some people say that perhaps volcano vents is where life got started. It's one theory, but could you elaborate on that theory? Yeah, the idea here is that life requires a couple of simple ingredients. It requires water some kind of water-rich environment. It involves, it requires energy of some kind. Now, Miller said lightning, other people say sunlight, but you also have the energy from the Earth's inner heat, and you require carbon and other carbon-based compounds, what are called organic molecules. Turns out one of the most exciting environments on Earth where all three of those ingredients come together are the deep ocean vents, the hydrothermal vents, or the black smokers, as they're sometimes called, on the bottom of the ocean. And these were discovered in the late 1970s by, this, by scientists diving in the submersible Alvin off the Pacific coast. Completely unexpected to find not just these hydrothermal vents, these undersea smokers, if you will, with, with all sorts of mineral-rich hot fluids coming out, but to find living communities far, far below the influence of the sun, where it's totally dark all the time, and yet life thrives because of all that energy coming out of the ocean floor. Now, when we talk about energy, uh, we realize that we mammals get our energy by eating plants. So we mammals could not have been the first form of life on the Earth, but plants in turn get their uh, energy from sunlight in a very complicated process called photosynthesis, which also could not have been the original energy-generating uh, device because it's very complicated. And we're talking about creating life from nothing almost. So you're saying essentially that the energy supply could have been uh, this very caustic environment on the bottom of the ocean? That's the theory, and here's why people think that might be so. In our bodies, the energy, for example, from plants or from sunlight is converted through a process called oxidation-reduction reactions. These are reactions just like that occur in a battery, your flashlight batteries. You're basically transferring electrons from one group of chemicals to another. And that exact same process occurs deep on the ocean floor because very, what are called reducing fluids, come out from the, below the ocean surface and they hit very oxidizing water in the ocean. And that couple, the oxidation and the reduction together, causes chemical reactions, just like in a battery, just like in your body. That's what we think the very first energy for life was, just like a battery driven by the Earth. Okay, now the astronomer Fred Hoyle 
had a different theory. In fact, he was quite the contrarian uh, within uh, cosmological circles. And he said the following, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, roughly speaking, and during the first billion years was the age of asteroids and meteors, constant bombardment by debris from outer space for about a billion years. We see that on the moon even today. And as a consequence, if life formed in the oceans, the oceans would have boiled off. And therefore, life could not have gotten started within the first billion years. So after the age of meteors ends, boom, bingo, life gets started very soon. So he says this means that life could not have started on the Earth. It came from outer space in the form of spores. So he called this the panspermia theory. But what are your thoughts about the panspermia theory? Well, at first glance, it sounds like a pretty crackpot idea, you know, life being seeded from outer space. But a lot of scientists are now taking this very seriously. I think there are two possibilities. One is that life is a cosmic imperative. It arises everywhere, and it arises very quickly. I've heard scientists say life comes about in a million years or a thousand years. There's one very famous scientist in the field who even says it takes two weeks. Well, if that's true, then life would have arisen on Earth and there's no problem. But what if life does take hundreds of millions of years? We have a planetary neighbor, Mars, that was habitable long before Earth, much less in the way of bombardment by meteorites, much more benign in terms of its temperature early on, and it had oceans or lakes. We now know that from these recent discoveries by NASA. So Mars was habitable hundreds of millions of years before Earth. It's very possible that life arose on Mars. And then there's this amazing mechanism. If Mars gets hit by a Mars-sized asteroid, say something that's 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers across, there will be, it's been shown, there'll be rocks thrown up into space. And those rocks will be relatively unheated, relatively unstressed. They could contain microbes. And those microbes could then be brought to Earth by Mars meteorites. So there are a whole group of scientists that are giving very serious consideration to the idea that all life on Earth is Mars life, because Mars was habitable earlier. And we may know that if in the next decade or two when we go to Mars, when we look specifically for life, we may find Earth-like life or fossils of Earth-like life on Mars that represent our ancestors. So if you want to see a Martian, you should simply look in a mirror. That's possible. Now, let me ask you a question that's bothered me for a long time, and that is the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, but there's only one DNA molecule, rearranged in different ways, of course, but there's only one DNA. It has ATCG as the building blocks, nucleic acids. That's why we can eat anything on the Earth. We can eat sea urchins, we can eat insects, we can eat plants, even though we're separated by a tremendous evolutionary distance because we're all made out of the same molecule. Now, if the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and life gets started pretty quickly, then how come it didn't start again with another DNA and again and again? Why don't we see different DNAs? We only see ATCG. We only see a certain set of amino acids, and that's it. We've had now not just a few hundred million years, but we've had three and a half billion years of quiet oceans with no meteor impacts to speak of. So why don't we have many DNAs? Boy, Professor, you know, that's such a great question, and a lot of us are asking the question in this way. Is the chemistry that we see in life today inevitable? Or are there lots of alternative pathways? Well, if there are alternative pathways, why don't we see them? And the explanation that's most often given is that 
life was a competition. And once that first successful self-replicating cell with all of its proteins and DNA, that very efficient, very powerful mechanism, once that cell got started, then it divided in a flash. You know, microbes can divide in less than an hour. So you had one, then two, then four, then eight. And in a matter of weeks, the whole Earth was populated by that extremely successful self-replicating cell. And that cell ate everything else. You didn't have a chance. If you weren't the first on the block to know how to live and know how to reproduce, then you were going to get eaten because you were food. Uh, well, let me ask you a question then. Uh, food depends on proteins. Uh, proteins, in turn, depend upon a template, that is DNA template, to create the protein. But there are many proteins that nature has not used. Uh, there are many proteins that you can create that nature has not even thought of. So uh, why didn't another DNA get off the ground that was uneatable, unedible, that it was based on proteins that simply cannot be digested by our DNA, and it's not based on ATCG, the four nucleic acids, but it's based on a different set, uh, you know, PQRST or whatever, and it creates proteins that are undigestible by our cells, and therefore the two life forms should coexist. What are your thoughts? Well, I think partly that life has been very careful in the molecules it selects. For example, RNA uses ribose. DNA uses deoxyribose. Why those particular sugars? These are sugars with five carbon atoms, and there are dozens of different sugars with five carbon atoms. Why those? Well, it turns out there's actually a, an advantage to those molecules because of their particular shape, and people have shown that if you try to use other molecules, they don't work. So to a certain extent, the molecules that life uses are the best molecules for the job. But also, I think life is incredibly good at taking various other potential molecules and eating them. It's just amazing how life has used all different kinds. Anything in this environment that has energy, life has learned to eat. And I think it's just once you get one kind of life established, it's really hard to get a second competitive system going. It's sort of like the ultimate monopoly. You, you can imagine uh, some company makes the best car, the best computer, and other companies try to get started. But if that first company is so huge and so large, it just swallows up the competition and nothing else to get going. Sort of like the diamond monopoly of De Beers. You know, there's never been another big company making diamonds because De Beers buys them all up and swallows up the competition. Well, the reason I ask you this is because in science fiction movies, we always see aliens from out of space that want some very specific things. First of all, they want to eat us, meaning that they can digest our proteins, which I find remarkable. Second of all, they're going to want to mate with us, in which case they have basically the same DNA as us, literally, so they can interchange uh, DNA sequences with us. And I find this rather impossible. But what you're saying is that, in some sense, DNA really is preferable, and that maybe when aliens from outer space land on the Earth, they're going to have DNA which is very similar to ours. Is that what you're saying? I think it's possible that some aspects of biochemistry will be very, very similar, maybe even DNA and RNA. But I think there will be very important differences. For one thing, we have what's called the genetic code. And that basically are sets of three genetic letters that match up to different amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I think that code may be wildly different if, even if it's there is a code on other worlds that it would be very different from ours, so I can't imagine there being that kind of unity. So there's some chance events, some chance chemical events in the origin of life, but I think there are also some aspects of origins that are going to be very similar 
from world to world. Okay, well, if you say that if another DNA got off the ground and our DNA basically ate up that DNA, then what happens when alien DNA reaches the Earth? Will our DNA consume molecule for molecule their DNA or vice versa? Perhaps their DNA will consume ours. Well, that's a real good question. It depends on the building block molecules. I can imagine alien DNA. I can imagine alien proteins that are totally poisonous to us and vice versa. It's also very possible that life on other worlds started with an opposite handedness. There is a, a very curious characteristic of life on Earth that all of the sugar molecules used in DNA and RNA are called right-handed. All the amino acids used in proteins are what are called left-handed. So there are mirror image molecules that our bodies can't use. In fact, that's one of, for dieting. There's a new product out. You can buy left-handed sugars, which taste sweet, but the body can't digest them. So this is one kind of artificial sweetener, which gives you no calories. It's a great invention. It's a great idea. So if there were an alien life form that happened to be reversed, and they used left-handed sugars and right-handed amino acids, then they couldn't eat us, we couldn't eat them. I think we'd probably get along. Okay. Now let's get back to the Miller experiment, because there's a huge gap that we left unfilled. Miller showed that amino acids, in some sense, are for free. We see them in nebulas in outer space. We see them in the cores of meteors from outer space. Uh, amino acids are out there in outer space. However, DNA is extremely complicated. If you look at a DNA molecule, you say to yourself, oh my God, look at that thing. And it would have taken an awful long time for Miller to get a DNA molecule off the ground. If he had done his experiment for maybe a billion years in that little test tube, then maybe he would have gotten one DNA molecule off the ground. So there's missing steps now. So some people say that before DNA, there was RNA. And before RNA, there was a even more primitive structures even before RNA. So what do we know about the gap between the amino acids that are for free that we see in the Miller experiment and RNA and DNA? This is probably the single biggest uncertainty in question, but there's so many great ideas out there. For one thing, as you say, RNA is a very complicated molecule. It's hard to imagine how it was synthesized from scratch in a prebiotic soup. Mineral surfaces may have helped. There are some minerals that attract ribose. There are some minerals that attract the bases. Um, but there are other neat ideas out there. In the book, Genesis, I describe an experiment by a person at our laboratory, a guy named Nick Platts, who realized that you could build up an RNA-like molecule from very, very simple building blocks, little cyclical molecules, the kinds of things that are produced when diesel exhaust burns or, or when you have a sooty fire. That soot itself, if you put it in water under just the right circumstances, will form tiny little stacks of molecules. And those stacks, if they're in just the right environment, will attract the bases the four letters A, T, C, and G of DNA. And those bases can line up on top of each other, and you can actually make a RNA-like molecule from scratch on the primitive Earth. Now, it's very possible, I think, that this is the sort of intermediate step where you build something that's simple from simple building blocks, and that mimics what's going to become more and more complex. You add layers of complexity gradual, one step at a time. So Nick Platt's idea is very, very powerful, um, and, and it's now being studied experimentally. That's the kind of thing people look for. You go from simplicity 
to complexity through a process known as emergence. Now, if you go back, back, way back into the past, and what do we know about the most primitive DNA or RNA on the Earth? Uh, Professor, that's a wonderful question because it has to do with what are essentially the most primitive biochemical features. What are the chemical fossils that we find in modern life that point to the earliest life? And I think the conclusion is unambiguous. There are a few chemical pathways that are buried in every single living thing. One of those is RNA. The ability for RNA not only to store information and pass it on from one generation to the next, but also for RNA to improve or catalyze certain reactions. Another is a cycle of what is known as metabolism, that is taking energy and atoms from the surrounding and building up new molecules. There's something called the citric acid cycle that seems to be built into every living thing. And there are a few other chemical pathways, the ability to take nitrogen and convert it to ammonia, for example. That's also fundamental. That's a way of using the element nitrogen in biological systems. So there are a few chemical pathways that we find in every living thing, and those we believe are the most primitive chemical pathways that point us to something about the earliest life. And where are these organisms that are the most ancient, most primitive forms of life on the Earth? Are they in the bottom of the ocean? Right now, the most primitive organisms that we know of are all in very extreme environments, in places where the acidity is very high, in places where it's very cold, in hot, deep hydrothermal vents. And people have two ideas about that. One is the possible, very real possibility that life originated in one of these extreme environments. The other possibility is that life originated near the surface, like Stanley Miller would say, but because of those nasty asteroids and meteors and comets that kept blasting the surface, the only life that survived those last insults was life that had adapted to the deep, hot, protected environments within the Earth's crust. So either way, those are the most primitive organisms that we see today. And that completes our interview with Dr. Robert Hagen. He's an astrobiologist, author of the book Genesis. Well, this talks about the possibility of perhaps microbial life existing throughout the universe, but that leaves open the question, what about intelligent life? And given the fact that our civilization, our scientific civilization, is only about 300 years old, going back to Galileo and Newton, the question is, what about civilizations that are thousands millions of years ahead of us in technology. Well, believe it or not, we physicists have tried to catalog what these civilizations might look like that are that advanced. A type one civilization would be planetary. They control the weather. They control volcanoes and earthquakes. Anything planetary, they control. A type two civilization exhausts the power of a planet and they become stellar. They, for example, can harness the entire energy output of a star. They play with stars. That is type two. A type three civilization is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They have starships able to hop between different star systems within the galaxy. Now, on this cosmic scale, what are we? Are we type one that can play with the weather and mold the planet? Are we type two that play with the sun? Are we type three that roam the galactic space lanes? No, we are type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. 
But we can calculate that we are perhaps, perhaps about 100 years from becoming type 1. And so we see the beginnings of that everywhere we look. The language of a type 1 civilization, a planetary language, will probably be English and maybe some Mandarin Chinese. They are the dominant languages on the internet. And we see the beginning of a planetary sports like the Olympics and soccer, planetary technology, planetary fashion like Gucci and, and uh, Chanel. So we're seeing the beginnings of the greatest transition in human history, the transition to a type one civilization, perhaps around the year 2100. Who knows for sure? that's it for exploration once again this is dr michio kaku and if you want to know more about exploration go to my website mkaku.org m-k-a-k-u.org or go to my facebook site in fact we have about five million fans on facebook so once again this is dr michio kaku for exploration see you next week